Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Abstract expressionism, we know it as a movement, we think about it as a movement, but it is actually very, a very complex phenomenon. That was one of the things that my co-curator, David Anfam, preferred to call it during, during the development of this exhibition. The term itself wasn't, um, wasn't coined by the, the artists. They, they saw themselves as a cohesive group, but not necessarily an artistic group. But it was coined by a, a critic in, um, in, in 1946. And it wasn't until quite a little bit later, in the 1950s, that major museums in the US began to acquire work by the, this group of artists. And it really is a question of, you know, what does this movement entail? Who are the people who are, are part of this movement? And how did it gain such traction? And I wanted to, I wanted to kind of describe how we have um, put the exhibition together with a view to reevaluating the movement and recognizing that although it, um, it is perceived to be unified in reality, it's a much more fluid, um, it's a much more fluid thing. The selection will show the fluidity of it, but also will show that the absolute individualism which emerged um, from the work of the majority of artists. But there are occasions, and we hope we've highlighted them within the construction of the exhibition, where we really do show how um, there are instances where, where artists influence each other and there's certain crossovers. But one of the, if I had, if I was, a gun was put to my head and I was asked for one thing that, that really unified them, the major tendency was for the all-over composition. This idea of, de of rejecting the formal concept of a composition having a central focus and for the, um, for the interest um, and the incident to be all over the canvas. So they were really fighting against um, the formal concept of composition. And you know we can see in people like Rothko, in Pollock, Reinhardt and others, this distribution and an engulfment of distribution of paint across the canvas, but also this notion of kind of engulfing the viewer. And in addition to this, this challenging the idea of a focal point within a painting, they were also breaking new ground with attitudes towards scale. They were quite literally taking the canvas off the easel and challenging all of those ideas about the size of the canvas. Also challenging the notion of galleries, creating these huge big canvases to challenge the gallery walls at the time. So to give you a little bit of background, I thought I would sort of just run through a few important things that were happening at the time, because one of the things that drew them all together was that they were pretty much all in New York at a time of great cultural political change. And what is interesting about abstract expressionism is that when it, um, it, it really got tr gained traction in the late 1940s and 50s, it saw the cultural center of, um, of, of the world moved from Paris to New York, which was the first time it happened. But of course, at the same time, um, the United States had gone through an enormous period of change, and it emerged after the Second World War as being a much stronger political force. So you see these both things, a cultural force and a political force, coming together at once. So these artists were, were, had, came from all corners of the globe, but they... Um, we had people like de Kooning, who came over from the Netherlands. We had um, Mark Rothko, who came from, um, from uh, the Ukraine. We had Gorky, coming from Armenia. Um, Hoffman came from Germany. So there really were all of these different kind of European influences coming over, but also South America as well, and the West Coast with Pollock and Still. 
a lot of cultural changes were happening in New York at that time. So in 1929, the Museum of Modern Art, which we kind of think of having been in existence forever, was established. And the, the founding director was Alfred Barr, who was the person that actually, in the end, really supported this new movement and brought so many of these fantastic works into, into, the, into MoMA's collection. So, of course, they have now the best collection of um, abstract expressionist work in the world. It also saw the, start, saw the Wall Street crash. So, you know, the, um, the depression of North America took hold and it lasted for more than a decade. In 1931, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney founded the Whitney Museum for American Art. And then I talked about a lot of Europeans coming over during the time of unrest and the rise of, of, um, of Nazism in, um, in Germany. And indeed, Black Mountain College was set up in North Carolina. Um, because of the closure of the Berlin Bauhaus. So, so many of the eminent um, teachers at that time came over to, um, to America, and Joseph Albers was, a, was the one who, who set up the new art program. It was an enormously influential college, and although it didn't teach um, any of the abstract expressionist artists, a lot of them went there to teach themselves. So people like um, Franz Klein, Willem de Kooning, um, Barbara Morgan, Robert Motherwell, Siskind, um, were all taught there, as did Clement Greenberg, who was the great critic of the time. So in 1935, Roosevelt, um, his new plan involved creating a federal works program. And it was an enormously enlightened thing to do. One of the things he, he um, did within this works program was he employed more than 5,000 artists who, um, who uh, were asked to make public sculptures. So it was the first time that th these artists, who were kind of up to then unemployed and doing odd jobs, were beginning to um, were being employed to create work, so it was quite a remarkable thing for them. They were also learning by by um, uh, being led in groups by eminent artists, some of them coming from Europe. So um, you know, Leger was one of the ones who led a group of, of artists, which included de Kooning. So there were all of these kind of influences going on, and added to that. Um, the, uh, they got to know each other, so it came almost like a trade union. So you could see the kind of beginning of that kind of social network building up. So I talked about Hans Hoffmann being one of the people that came over. Like Joseph Albers, he established a school. Krasner was one of the first artists that was, was taught there. And Alfred Barr, very, very soon after taking over MoMA, started doing extraordinary shows, which exposed all of these artists to, um, to the, the, the European greats. So Cubism and Abstract Art was one of his first exhibitions, as was Fantastic Art, Dadaism, Surrealism. Given to that, Marcel Duchamp had taken up um, residence in New York. Max Ernst had come over. Andre Breton was here for a while, so he was kind of holding court in New York. And all of these people started showing work. And as well as... Um, as well as them being over here uh, and, and the, the major galleries setting up, there were also commercial galleries being set up. So, of course, um, uh, um, the Guggenheim, Peggy Guggenheim, set up her Art of This Century, where she showed a lot of, of the modern artists. But then when she started showing abstract expressionist artists, she was showing them alongside the European moderns. So she was really measuring them up. So I will start by um, going on to our um, first slide which shows them as a group. Now, this is, this is a very famous photograph, which, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, called the Irascibles. And this dates from 1950, so a little bit further on than, than the point at which I was, I was um, outlining earlier. So by this stage, they are a coherent group. It's not, it's not absolutely all of them, but it's quite a few of them. So you can, you can notice people like Mark Rothko and Willem de Kooning and Jackson Pollock are all here. And they were protesting about the Metropolitan's attitude towards contemporary art and how they didn't show any 
art of the 20th century. And um, they wrote a, a letter to the newspaper, but they also posed for this photograph. And um, it, it has sort of been one of those kind of images of them that's dogged them ever since, as if they're kind of a very difficult and cohesive group. And I think they were difficult, but they were kind of raving individuals rather than um, agreeing on every point. So many of them fought constantly. And just to illustrate the schools, this is Hans Hoffman conducting a live class in Provincetown. He had a very different way of teaching. It was very inclusive, and he used to, um, he, he used to paint himself and, and describe what he was doing to the students, which you can see happening here. So it was a revelation to them compared to the formal training that a lot of them had had elsewhere. And then the, um, the social aspect, of course, they, you know, they are known for the culture of um, heavy drinking. They actually started off drinking coffee at, um, at cafes everywhere, but as soon as they had a little bit of money, they replaced the coffee for whiskey. And here they are at the Cedar Street Tavern, which was a famous meeting place for them. And they had endless um, conversations about art, about each other's art. They were fascinated in what each other did. And um, they, they started slowly showing in commercial galleries one of the things that also happened at that time was they, they um, established uh, um, galleries which they ran. So they were run as kind of cooperatives and supported each other in that way. But openings of those, those events were um, full of artists. And it, it, it got to the point where actually that's all they cared about was, was um, their, their fellow artists' attitude towards their work because hardly anyone else came and they certainly didn't sell anything. So they all lived in fresh air. I had the great good fortune to, um, to meet with two people who knew them, um, the, the documenter and historian, Irving Sandler, and Dory Ashton as well, who is a, uh, a professor of, of the history of art, both now in their 90s. And um, Dory said that they, they knew all of the tricks about how to kind of manage to get out of the cafe without paying for the coffee, but also how to heat these, these enormous studios that they rented for very little money by um, tripping the electrical um, meter so that they weren't paying for any of their electricity. But the, she, you know, she talked about them. They became militant poor. They lived like this for such a long time. I think there is sometimes this... this notion that they, they all became very wealthy very quickly. They really didn't. Um, it, took, it took decades and decades. And someone like de Kooning, who is perhaps you know, one of the most celebrated of them all, really didn't start to make any money at all until the 1950s. And here's another group photograph of them kind of meeting regularly in each other's studios in, in 1956. And this is Milton Resnick's studio. Milton Resnick was one of those um, uh, group artists amongst the group who we don't know quite so well now. We have um, included a fantastic work by him in the exhibition, but so many of these other characters were very important to the kind of cohesion to the social, to the social group. The question is, how do you display what is a very sprawling subject? And David and I deliberated for some time and came to the conclusion that what we would do was to identify within the overall footprint of the exhibition those artists that we, we considered to be the pioneers. So we have given a dedicated gallery right at the centre of the exhibition to Pollock, to Rothko, to Still and to de Kooning. And around them, the other work is arranged thematically. We have an introduction which comprises two galleries. One is a, a, a mixture of early work from all of the key players within the exhibition, and the second one is Gorky. But I can talk a little bit about some of the early work. Now, we've included a range of photographs, of mostly self-portraits, by, by all of the artists. So we've got Rothko, we've got Pollock, we've got Gorky. Um, and this, this one of, of Rothko with his, um, his, his strange little shades, which actually 
blank his eyes and make, make them look like empty eye sockets is rather haunting and gives us a sense as to how he, um, how he viewed himself. You know, we think of the eyes as being the windows of the soul, and here we can't see it. But interestingly, there is another early work by Rothko in this room, which is a very small work from the, um, from the National Gallery of Washington. And it's, a, it's almost like a stage set or a facade of a building. And it was something that he referred to um, when he was describing his later works, those works we all know so well, those rectangles of floating colours. He called them facades, this idea that they kind of conceal and reveal at the same, same time. So, you know, in a, in a kind of understanding of his work, this portrait is, is really key. But the two, what I consider to be the two major works in, um, in this first gallery, an early work by um, Pollock, which comes to us from the Museum of Philadelphia, done in 1942-43, called Male Female. And you see him really here grappling with figuration. He was taught by the regionalist painter Thomas Hart Benton. And Pollock describes how Hart Benton really kind of pushed this idea of realism at him and actually pushed it so hard at him that he, um, he, was, he was rejecting it here. And you can see that he's beginning to, um, he's beginning to kind of, it's beginning to break down. I don't know if this red light works on this. Um, oh, yes, it does. So here... Is the, is the male form, or what we consider to be the male form. So this long, this long column with, uh, with some workings out, some, some numerical um, notation on it, which we're not quite sure what it, what it refers to. And there's also then, on the other side, the female form. So we can see the eyelashes, the eyes and the eyelashes at the top, and this more curvaceous form running down. So it's, very, it's a very enigmatic work. It, you really have that sense of um, the, 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 the friction between, um, between his desire to go into abstraction, but also these last vestiges of figuration. But we also see up in the top left-hand corner, drips of paint. So it's almost announcing what, what is going to happen a little bit later on with his work. The second very key early work is by Mark Rothko. Um, and what you, what you see in this work is his kind of typical, the, 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 um, the translucent colours that he's able to achieve, which is something that he carries with him into those, those classic works of the 1950s, 1960s. But there's a real sense of, of, um, of his debt to surrealism here. He, um, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's well aware of Max Ernst's work, he's seen a lot of surrealist work, the psychological undertones, there's also the idea of kind of spiritualism and religious um, symbolism going on as well. So it's a sort of, it, it, it's kind of very much these tragic concerns very much modulated into a language of myth-making. And I talked earlier about the, the depression and um, the, uh, the, 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 Europe, the, the issues in Europe with the, um, the rise of the Nazi party and a lot of Europeans coming over, they really did have that sense that they were living in very, very difficult times. There was a sense of tragedy that kind of overhung the atmosphere in which they moved. So it, it wasn't just poverty, it was, um, it, there was that, that kind of concern about racism, about world order. Um, a little bit later, of course, you have the nuclear bomb the, the, um, and, and Japan and Pearl Harbor. So it was, a, you know, it was a very, very marked time for them. And I think this is very much borne out in a lot of this early work. The first time there was an exhibition of um, abstract expressionism in London was 1959, and it was also the last time. So our exhibition now is, is um, the first time in nearly 60 years that a group of work 
um, illustrating this, this vast movement has come together. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. When I first suggested the idea of this exhibition to the Exhibitions Committee, um, before I did any research, on, very much research on it, um, I hadn't been aware of that. And it was, it's absolutely amazing to me. And indeed, it was rather amazing to American lenders when we went to talk to them about um, supporting the exhibition. Um, Interestingly, although the term abstract expressionism had been coined by then and was in current usage, even though the artists themselves didn't like being titled, you know, de Kooning famously said, it would be a disaster to name ourselves. When, the, um, when MoMA sent this exhibition over to tour to eight different um, European countries, they called it the New American Painting. There was a sense of nationalism that had built up about it um, by this stage. And of course, this was, the, this was the exhibition that was most famously supported by the CIA. And the thinking was that, you know, during the Cold War, what better way of demonstrating America's superior freedom, political freedom, um, personal freedom, artistic freedom was to show these works. It didn't matter whether they, they were regarded well by the American public or not, but what they, what they um, offered was a, um, a contrast to the straitjacket that the um, Soviet um, artists had to, had to wear at that time, where it was kind of old cornfields and, and ballet. But it's very interesting for us, actually, you know, as, as art historians kind of looking back and seeing how art was um, displayed in the past. Here's another image of it. And, and um, here is, uh, I don't know if you've any, any of you have been in the exhibition yet, but we are showing de Kooning's Dark Palm. This isn't Dark Palm, but it's one in, in the same vein. So it's, um, it's just rather, rather nice to see these images. So we move on to Arshil Gorky, who I consider very much to still be part of the introduction. Arshil Gorky was a pivotal figure within the movement. There's also always this kind of these conversations about was Arshil Gorky the last surrealist or the first abstract expressionist? And of course, he straddled both camps. He really was both. He came from Armenia. He was born in 1904. He brought with him a deep knowledge of the history of art. He completely understood um, the, the, the precepts of, of um, cubism and surrealism. And what he was able to do was synthesize them into a style that he made all his own. And here is a work that um, dates from 1944. It comes from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It is one of his most celebrated works. And it, it, um, it's inspired by... Um, the landscape, it references a bridge on the, the Housatonic River in Connecticut. And um, it, of course, you know, you can see Kandinsky's influence here in terms of the colour, but he was an absolutely fantastic colourist. And interestingly, you know, not only was he a great inspiration to the younger abstract expressionists that were coming up behind him, he, it wasn't just his work where he inspired, he was the first artist that a lot of them met that was really living like an artist. De Kooning describes it as a life-changing moment when he, after he had befriended Gorky, when Gorky invited him back to his studio and he said for the first time he saw an artist living like an artist. Gorky was as poor as the rest of them but all of his energy, all of the little money he had was put into servicing his studio and his work was his absolute dedication and it was a real changing moment for de Kooning. He then decided that he would stop um, doing odd jobs and little design things and, and just focus on, on his painting. And, and by, by real contrast, here's another work, um, Diary of a Seducer, from the next year. Uh, very, very, um, very monochromatic, almost near Grisaille work. 
Um, there's a chill and elegiac tenor to this particular work. There's references to Miro here, but he's developing the line more. His technique is extraordinary. De Kooning by this stage had actually, um, they, they shared little tricks all the time in De Kooning because he had worked in, in design so, so much, really understood equipment, artistic equipment. And he introduced, um, he introduced Gorky to what is called a designer's liner's brush where you can do a very, very thin, very exact line, which Gorky was delighted with and took up straight away. But there's real echoes of his, um, of his graphic work in, in this painting. The title refers to Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish um, theologian. And you know, like the other work, it is completely embedded in, in surrealism. And the, tradition, the, the title was actually suggested by Max Ernst. But there's a great sense of, of compositional balance, you know, along with the, the shallow and intricate space, that, that it, it really does show his, his un, deep understanding of, um, of cubism. But this is an installation um, photograph from the, um, from the exhibition itself. And one of the things that you'll see, if you haven't already been into the exhibition, but you'll see that we have really focused on, on placing sculpture, namely David Smith's sculpture throughout. One of the things we do in this exhibition, which was not done in the 1959 exhibition, was to include both sculpture and photography. And um, David Smith is the greatest of all of the, um, of the abstract expressionist sculptors. And you see the wonderful display in the courtyard, which is, is it, we're trying to recreate and to some extent the, the, the way that he showed his work in his, his area of land in, in Bolton's Landing, where it, um, he wants his work to commune in some way with the sky. But we also, it, within the galleries, we wanted to commune with the artwork. And so much of what Smith did was very much um, in keeping with what the artists were, what the, his um, Fellow paint, his fellow artists were doing at the time on two dimensions. And the cat's cradle that he achieves in this work, which is called Blackburn, Song of the Irish Blacksmith, is so echoed in, um, in Gorky's work that it's, a, it's a, a particularly good placing. But you'll find that throughout the exhibition, that you know, he, he does echo so many of, them, of the concerns of the painters. And then we get into the biggest gallery, which is, is Jackson Pollock. Um, and we have a lot of Pollocks. Uh, we also have some um, David Smiths in, in the space, and we also have a work by um, his wife, Lee Krasner. But this is Pollock's mural done, for, done in 1943. This was actually a commission by um, Peggy Guggenheim for her New York home. Um, and there's loads of um, myths around the story of, of the development of this work. It was the biggest work that he ever did. And it was the, it, up to then, it was, it, it was the biggest work ever created by any artist in the abstract expressionist movement. And it really did signal a, a change. It, it kind of announced the beginning of the movement as such. And after this, so many of the other artists kind of started to look at scale in a very different way. But again, you see vestiges of figuration here, and there is a sense of these kind of prancing forms moving across the, the, the canvas. It belongs to Iowa and was very recently cleaned by the Getty Museum, and, and um, we understand is kind of as fresh and vibrant as when it was first painted. But one of the myths that I mentioned earlier was that when M. Pollock came to fit it into Peggy Guggenheim's hallway, it must have been a very big hallway, um, it was slightly too large, and um, Marcel Duchamp had to help Peggy cut a bit off the, the end, and, and um, Pollock was absolutely enraged. Uh, we don't know whether this is a myth or not. We suspect it is. The conservator of the painting has told me that he, it doesn't look as if this, this was the case, but nonetheless, it's a lovely story. But that, that sense of, 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 of real kind of movement and energy is very much embedded in this work. 
And the other remarkable work, well, we've got lots of remarkable works by Jackson Pollock, but the other work that we have in the exhibition is Blue Poles from Canberra, um, done in 1952. So with Mural in 1953 and Blue Poles in 1952, these effectively bookend each, each you know, the beginning and, and end of, um, of Pollock's remarkable, but very sadly, very short career. It is a just extraordinary painting. The energy, the, the sense of motion is, is quite extraordinary in it. Again, like um, Ural, quite a few myths have built up, been built up about how it was, was produced. And there was a suggestion that both Barnett Newman and the sculptor Tony Smith, not the, not the Smith that we saw earlier, but Tony Smith, had been involved in a drunken session with, with Pollock and flinging some paint about. But Lee Krasner tells us that that was not the case. And um, there was also a suggestion that there's blood in the canvas, which is perfectly possible, actually, because one of the ways that Pollock um, distributed the paint was to use a baster, like kind of like, a, my understanding is it was kind of like a turkey baster, but the tube was glass, almost like a test tube, you know, that sort of thickness of glass and curved with a rubber end, and he used that to distribute the paint in some spaces, and he pressed it so hard that the, the glass broke. And you can see in... Um, pretty much this corner here, there are lumps of broken glass. And you can see the shape of them. You can see that curve of the tube that he just broke onto the canvas. So, you know, quite feasible that some drops of blood joined it as well. But, you, you know, there, there always has been that... that um, those suggestions that, you know, a, a child could do this, it was said at the time and it continues to be said now, and he, he was dubbed Jack the Dripper, and, you know, all of, all of those things um, came to... Came, you know, it, 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 were suggested by the public about his work. But actually, you know, if you stand in front of it and really concentrate on it, you can see how many layers he is building up. And by this stage, he's not using any traditional means of painting. He's entering into the painting. It's lying flat in the ground. He's leaning over it. You know, he talks about it being energy made visible. Um, he's, he's communing with, with, with the painting. Of course, the other, the other great phrase from, from Pollock is, I am nature. So he really felt that he was, he was embodying and, and encompassing nature in some way by, ways by his work. But he wasn't using traditional materials. He was using household paint instead of normal oil paint that artists would use. And he wasn't using a brush. He was using a stick. And as I said earlier, a basting tube. And then when he came to do these blue poles, over the oh, super, they were the last piece that went over the top of it. He used a piece of wood to to uh, to, to 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 rule these out. But there's also um, appendages coming off it, and the suggestion that you know these echo somehow the the human-like figures that were prancing across mural. So it is a real it's it, it's a real chance to see beginning and end. It's a remarkable loan to have got from Canberra. The um, the Australian. Um, government and, and, and gallery have been unbelievably generous. It hasn't been loaned for 20 years, and, and I, I guess we'll be lucky if we see it here in another 20 years. So it is a fantastic work to have. And here's an, an image of him painting looked, looked over by his wife, Lee Krasner. So she's sitting on a stepladder, having a great vantage point of seeing him um, working on his, his, um, his painting. And this is um, a painting that's not in the exhibition. It's, it's, um, it's, it's uh, one, number 31, which, um, which belongs to MoMA. Some of these works are very fragile now and are very rarely lent. 
but you can see the um, the action and the you know one of the things that you you, you understand from standing in front of a, a work like like Bupol's is that he was a consummate draftsman. He had such a great ability to um, to to uh, to draw in midair, you know, with it with f falling onto the canvas. Everything was completely deliberate. Nothing was by chance. And of course, this is a famous um, photograph by Hans Namuth, who f who filmed Pollock painting. And it was, a, it was a very notable thing at the time. People began to understand his work in a different way when they saw, when they saw that particular film. And just to give a, I just threw this in because I just think it's actually really interesting. It's, it's the, the idea of the public mood. And it's, um, you know, here is, a, here is a, a model posing in 1950 in front of Jackson Pollock's work, Lavender Mist. Um, at the Betty Parsons Gallery as part of a Cecil Beaton spread in Vogue. So you can see that the more artistic side of the media are beginning to kind of pick this up as a real moment. By this stage, Jackson Pollock had already appeared in Life magazine, and um, it, Clement Greenberg was calling him, you know, one of the greatest painters ever. So he was, his, his star had really risen very quickly. And, you know, he was the first one to really gain fame in that way. And, and um, de Kooning... Uh, did note about Pollock. He said, well, he broke the ice for the rest of us. It was a very important thing that one of them managed to, um, managed to push through. And I, I mentioned earlier that Lee Krasner had a painting in this gallery. She's very centrally placed. And this is a wonderful work from 1960, painted, of course, after Pollock's untimely death. And it was a point at which she's not only responding to mural in this painting, you can see, you can see that, that element of response. And it's, it's also a very big work. But it, it's her coming to terms with her husband's death. So it's a, it's, it's a wonderful, um, a very monochrome work by her. I included this image of the Peggy Guggenheim gallery. She had a remarkable way of showing work in her gallery. She loves showing work of all sorts, so there's sculpture and furniture. And it's just such an, incre it's such an incredible way of, of showing painting where there's kind of suspended in, in the air with these, these remarkable structures kind of holding them up. But it, was, um, it, it must have felt incredibly modern at the time. And as I said earlier, she was showing all of the modern masters, not just, not just the abstract expressionists. And David Smith again appears in this gallery. This is a remarkable piece from him called Hudson River Landscape. Of course, Smith, like all of the abstract expressionists, was very um, influenced by Picasso. Um, Alfred Barr was showing, showing Picasso's work by that stage at MoMA. They saw um, a major show by Picasso in the 1950s. Um, and also they saw Guernica. But he was, he, Smith was particularly fascinated by um, Picasso's ability to weld. And this is a, a very flat work. Um, which is all, it, it's almost two-dimensional, but meant, meant to be seen in the round. And it describes his, um, his train journey. So you can see these train tracks. He's describing the, the, um, the landscape as well. And this is Smith's workshop. So you can see some of the figures in the centre are um, part of the Tank Totem series. And one of the Tank Totem series is positioned very close to Mural because it looks as if it's walking out of, 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 um, of Pollock's canvas. And then gesture as colour. This is our first thematic gallery in the exhibition. And one of the things we tried to do in this was to um, challenge that, um, that distinction that was built up in the 1950s about um, uh, action painting and colour field painting. And it was a, an argument that was um, 
raged between Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg, the two great critics of the day, who really supported, um, in, in different ways, the abstract expressionists. Both of them wrote in major magazines. Both of them did lectures on the series. Both of them assisted in some of the... Um, the curation of 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 of, um, of work in small galleries, and both of them, you know, wrote uh, significant volumes on on the work. So that they were enormously important figures in in its development and promotion. But they did fight constantly about this this one this one area. What David and Fam and I are trying to show in this gallery is actually it is kind of a ridiculous idea to separate gesture and colour because in so many works you can see both working together and this is a fine example of it. This is by a work, uh, this is by Sam Francis. Now Sam Francis didn't live in in New York. He was um, he was always based in California and really is a leading abstract expressionist in. Um, in, in California and, and on the West Coast and influenced people, other people who live there like, like Richard Diebenkorn who um, had a studio next door to him for a couple of years. But here's Sam Francis on this enormous canvas which really does give a sense of the sublime is, um, you know, it is it, the, the whole kind of glory of colour and his, um, you know, the action of his work as well in these drips, it's just got such vitality. So the two disciplines are very much present in this work. Joan Mitchell, um, one of the, the leading female artists. And, you know, one of the things that we knew we would, would, would come up as, a, as a, a discussion, a talking point in this exhibition is, you know, are women artists included? And yes, they are. We thought very carefully of it. And, and they're all there by merit, which is the important thing. And I asked, it was one of the questions that I asked Dori Ashton, because, of course, she was a woman living amongst them, so she understood what it was like. And I said, well, how, how difficult was it for people like Lee Krasner and Joan Mitchell? And she said, well, it's interesting, actually. She said um, one of the real problems was that the critics never wrote about the women, so that was a kind of real reflection of the society of the time. But she says, as regards the male painter, she says, if the female painter was really good, they accepted her. And Joan was really good, and they all thought she was a good painter. So she was, you know, she was seen as part of the group, as was Krasner, as was Nevelson, and um, and later Frankenthaler. So I thought that was quite an interesting perspective. And and with with both Joan Mitchell and and Krasner, they're being very prominently placed within the exhibition, not because they're women, but because the work merits it. And, and Joan Mitchell's work looks particularly splendid in a gallery devoted to gesture and colour. She's um, she's got great. Uh, her, her handling of paint is absolutely extraordinary, very different to someone like Helen Frankenthaler, who used staining, you know, she made a technique that was all her own, but Frankenthaler here is kind of really layering the painting up with them, um, with palette knives and, and, and um, to, to great effect. So it's a very, it's a, it's a very vibrant work. Janet Sobel is another female artist we've included and just represented her by one work, a, a, a tremendously, interesting um, painter who is, is really much forgotten over here. Janet Sobel was of European extraction. She, um, she came to America and married an American. She had children and at the age of 40, she started picking up her children's painting um, equipment and started painting herself. And, and immediately, it must have been kind of just a, a, a remarkable thing for her as a housewife, effectively. She was picked up by Peggy Guggenheim and the next year her work was being shown in the art of this century. Interestingly, um, Clement Greenberg and Pollock went to see an exhibition and saw Janet Sobel's work there at the Art of the Century. And it was the first time that Pollock was exposed to um, all-over painting. 
and it had quite an impact on him. So we thought it would be um, it would be wonderful to include this work, which has got very much got elements of the, the microcosm and macrocosm embedded within it. And here is Janet, just to prove the point, in a very domestic environment, lying in her stomach painting, which I think is just such a, such a wonderful image. Clifford Still. So we have a very big Clifford Still um, later on in the exhibition. As I said earlier, he is one of the, the pioneers of the movement and therefore deserved a, a big, merited a big space. But we, we put in this early work as well, just to show um, how he um, how he developed. This is a sm much smaller canvas, so it's um, it's one and a half meters by meter, um, done in 1946. It shows his extraordinary um, range of, of color. Um, you know these these bright, vivid pinks. But the other thing of note is what he used to call a lifeline that ran through the middle, sort of emanating light. He. Um, Spent 10 years in New York um, and showed work at um, both the Betty Parson Gallery and, and um, Peggy Guggenheim. Interestingly, actually, you know, just talking of women, um, the, the, the women painters at the time possibly didn't get as much recognition as they deserved because the critics simply didn't cover their work. But when you think of, of three of the most important women in the development of this movement, it's Dorothy Miller who worked with Alfred Barr in, um, at MoMA and put on major shows of abstract expressionism, including the new American painting that came to the Tate. It's Peggy Guggenheim who had a vision to show this, this new work. And then Betty Parsons who, took, who almost took over from Peggy Guggenheim and, um, and continued to represent so many of the artists. So they were really, you know, they absolutely were in the forefront of um, of recognizing the talent of this group of artists and promoting it as much as they could. But Clifford Still, after his stint in New York, he um, he, he moved back to the West Coast and taught in at the California School of Art in San Francisco. And he actually invited Mark Rothko to come and teach with him. And it was felt that um, Rothko learned much from Clifford Still, not only his dedication to painting, but also the um, eliminating all sense of of, um, of uh, figuration from his work. And this is this is called one of his multi-form canvases, which is kind of well in the way to those rectangles of floating colours that we're all so familiar with. But you can see what a fantastic colourist he is in this earlyish work. And then we move into the next thematic room, which is the violent mark, very much dominated by um, by Franz Klein. But you know, I spoke earlier about all of the the the, um, the, the global difficulties that were happening at the time, and the the, um, the harsh climate in which all of these artists were living. And this was very much reflected in a lot of the art. Franz Klein, who painted um, who painted at night, and also always talked about his his. Um, his, his works having something of the nighttime about them. These very, very aggressive um, uh, paintings of his uh, using enamel paint. This is one of his most famous works. And then Tworkov, again, one of those artists that we've, we've brought into the exhibition, possibly not terribly well known, but should be, um, was very important to the development of the movement. And he talks about this as, you know, you have a sense of a painting that's been scribbled or over quite violently and there's no sense of what's going on behind. Is it two lovers meeting or is it someone, is it, is it someone murdering a victim? 
Willem de Kooning, he is, again, has a gallery in his own. He's, um, he, he's, he's very much one of the pioneers of the movement. And, and this photograph, early photograph of him in his studio wearing outdoor clothes, because I think it was probably very cold, um, he, um, it shows a work in an easel. He never really left the easel. He always remained an easel painter, unlike the... Um, people like uh, Rothko and, and, um, and, and Pollock, you know, who are painting on a much bigger scale. And he also always retained that sense of gesture as a trace of violent emotion. So, you know, just thinking of Franz Klein's work, who was a very close friend of de Kooning's, that, that violence is, has always got a presence in, in de Kooning. And this is one of his earliest works um, that, that we show in the exhibition, 1945, Pink Angels, absolutely beautiful oil and charcoal and canvas. So it kind of announces his obsession with, the, with female eroticism. And he famously said that, you know, flesh was the reason oil paint was invented. Um, so really, that, that, that's him sort of saying, well, you know, I, I'm always going to grapple with them, um, with abstraction, but really, flesh is, it's, it's, it's depicting flesh that's always going to, to pull, pull him back. And here we see charcoal's lines scoring and dissecting a human form. And also, I mean, th there's a very, very strong um, influence in, in Picasso here as well, and there are actually references to Guernica in this, this painting. A little work by him. This is a, a very important work, but very small, called Zot, and Zot means fool in, um, in, in, in Dutch. Um, it, it comes from a, a series um, which includes fame, very famous works like Attic and ex Excavation, which sadly are in such bad condition now they just can't travel. Um, but here you see, you know, again, he's struggling with abstraction. You get a sense of a kind of jumble of lots of different body parts. There's a real kind of visceral energy to it. And there's a, there's a little um, kind of orange smear here, which kind of adds to, the, adds to that visceral mood. And here's one of his most famous women, women too. He was very, out of all of the abstract expressionists, he was possibly the, the, the best trained. He received, although he came from a very, very impoverished family in Rotterdam, he received a great training through his, the design firm that he was apprenticed to. So he went to, um, he went to formal art school for, for a number of years and was very well versed in um, Netherlandish old masters. Um, and he, here, by 1952, has decisively turned to the theme of, of women. Um, and this is, um, this is in a, a wall of women. And he talks about, a quote from him, he talks about, the woman had to do with the female painted through all ages, all those idols. I see the horror in them now, but I didn't mean it. I wanted them to be funny, so I made them satiric, monstrous-like sibyls which kind of demonstrate the complexity as to how, he, how he, he feels them, what he's trying to depict in women. He often started with the mouth and talks about kind of cutting out from magazines images of the mouth and painting around it. He took weeks, days, a year to finish his first woman painting. They are so complex, they're so overpainted. Um, they're the, the most extraordinary works. So, there's such pent-up power in them. But he was also retained an interest in the landscape, and we see that both at, the, at this gallery dedicated to de Kooning, but also at the end of the exhibition as well. This is a very, very beautiful work that um, is inspired by his journey to the country and back from it again. And you see those kind of fleshy pinks at the top of the painting as well that he loves so much. 
and to Mark Rothko. Here's an installation photograph of, um, of our exhibition, and um, you can see into the Clifford Still Gallery, into the blue there. The work has been very tightly packed. I always had in mind that we would use the central hall to create a sort of Rothko chapel, um, and uh, with the blue piece being the altar in some, in some aspect. And this is just a, his, his, um, his chapel in Houston. So I don't think we've done too badly. And it's somehow, it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of wonderful doing that in the grandeur of the academy. We've deliberately hung the works very close together. It was something that Rothko liked. He, um, he always wanted to, what he called, defeat the walls. And um, I hope that we've managed to do it here. And here's a work from the Whitney. We've tried to um, include a, a real variety of work. You know, there is, um, the, the, there's no such thing as a typical Rothko, although we kind of think about those floating areas of color, which is true. They're all very, very different. And this very lyrical one has this very strong black, black band running through it. He was also always very concerned in balance in his painting and measure. And um, he wanted to, um, he wanted to get that sense of, of, um, of music in them. He was very interested in how music can alter the mood and how, you know, how you could achieve that in painting. So he wanted the painter to almost engulf the viewer so that you become kind of engulfed by a mood. And like, like Rothko, uh, like Pollock, and, and like Still as well, he didn't name any of his, his paintings. They were always numbered because he didn't want anyone to come with any um, perception of what the um, emotional... Um, any emotional content within the work. Uh, and he thinned the paints to create these, these wonderful stained canvases. This is the biggest one that's in the center point. And you know, there's been a lot of um, ideas about what, what, these, um, what these canvases represent. Are, you know, he would argue they're the embodiment of powerful emotions. He talked about all of all human emotions being summed up in three words, tragedy, ecstasy, and doom. But from the 1950s to right through to, um, to his last paintings, he, um, he never abandoned these hovering tears of color. Some people have said they're surrogates for the upright form, that they're, they're a kind of landscape, or that they're mood pieces. But you know, when we think about that idea of the facade and how they conceal and reveal at the same time, I think it's actually a very good reading of them. And they're incredibly contemplative. So Barnett Newman and Ad Reinhardt both um, took abstraction to its absolute um, point, um, in, but in very different ways. Uh, they didn't get on. I think this is the first time anyone's ever showed them together. Um, they were both very um, exacting personalities, and there was one stage, actually it was something that rumbled on for years, when um, Barnett Newman took Ad Reinhardt to court for calling him a pompous professor, amongst other things, which were worse than that. Um, it never came to anything, but they, um, they were daggers drawn for the rest of their, their working career. But, um, you know, here we see Barnett Newman, a late work profile of light, and it really has that sense of, of transcendental subliminal radiance. He talked about his classic zips in his work, which you see here in a very kind of, it's a very wide band, um, of emanating light. And in a, a, a canvas, which is, you know, that, that density of color became such an important thing for him, perfection was as well. But you'll see that deliberately, there's, um, there's a running of the blue paint onto the, onto the white canvas. And it's something that is picked up again in this sculpture by, um, sorry, says David Smith, it's not David Smith, this is Barnett Newman's sculpture. So you can see, see on the, the right-hand side, oh, sorry, you can see on the right-hand side a very clean zip. 
and then on the left-hand side, you know, echoing that messy colour that we saw in Profile of Light. Ad Reinhardt started in a very different direction, so you can see here in an early work, he's building up these blocks of colour, and he, he pairs this away until he ends up with what he calls these ultimate paintings, which are built up from um, different squares of colours. If you look at it very closely, um, you, you see these four, the three groups of three squares, all painted in very, very, very dark colours, red, green and blue, um, but of course the appearance is black. And because he took so much oil out of the paint, he was left with this very dry pigment and this completely velvety surface. It's a, I can't tell you what an absolute joy it is for, for, for any curator to, um, to be in the galleries while the works are all coming in and you see the, you see the crate open. And I, pe I peered over the lid of every crate, you know, and there is that kind of emotional excitement, you know, physical reaction about seeing these extraordinary works. This was quite a one because it was, it was, it was laying flat on a, a, a table and peering over the edge, it was that sense of absolutely looking into the void. You know, no, no darkness that we experience is anything like that. It is quite, a, quite an extraordinary work. And once he, he um, achieved this formula, it's something he carried on painting t until his, the rest of his life. So he did it from 1943 to 1967, the last years just in this 60 by 60 format, which of course, you know, there's allusions to Malevich's Black Square, and you know, all of those are present in his work. There's Reinhardt in the studio. You can see him working on, you can, you can see one of the squares here and how he worked. They're incredibly fragile. Darkness visible is where things get a little bit depressing. Um, the predominance is black in this gallery, and here's a, an atypical Mark Rothko work. He started doing these works towards the, the end of his life. Um, he, he died by his own hand in 1970. Um, black on grey, a very, very beautiful, poignant work. We've also got Robert Motherwell, another very poignant work, Elegy to the Spanish Republic. He was absolutely, um, you know, it, it, the atrocities of, of, the, of the war were something that affected him deeply. And um, he responded to it in this very large series of paintings. This was actually commissioned by Iowa, who also own Pollock's mural. So it, um, it matches mural in scale. And there's Robert Motherwell painting at, at um, teaching and painting at Black Mountain College, just to kind of... Um, remind you of the, the, um, the, the, the influence they had over, over the next generation coming behind them. Louise Nevelson, another very dark work. She was a, a very interesting um, artist who appropriated... She took a lot from Cubism and, and Joseph Cornell, and she appropriated lots of um, bric-a-brac and bits of turned wood and um, painted them, erasing all sense of their former history and then assembling them into these, these wonderful large pieces which are meant to be seen against a wall flat. So they're meant to be viewed as a painting. We include works on paper and photography. And one of the, the key works in the room actually isn't either, but it, um, it, it, it shows, demonstrates Pollock's drawing style. It also demonstrates his, um, his last, one of his, it, it's a, one of his last works, and you can see that he's beginning to move back into figuration. It's always referred to as head. But he's thinned down the paint so much by this stage that it is, although he's still painting flat, there's a footprint, uh, there's a bare footprint there at the top, at the top right-hand corner. He's still painting flat. It kind of runs like an ink and stains the canvas. It's really quite a, a remarkable work. But 
photography played quite a, a big part in, in certainly the artist's perception of, um, of movement and action. And, and here's an early work by Barbara Morgan where she's, um, she's photographing the movement of light. And it's something that um, Pollock is supposed to have seen and has influ influenced his, the way he, he paints. And here's another work by Peter Namath where, where Pollock appears to be dissolving into light as he paints one of his great canvases with another one hung behind him. Franz Klein, um, we, we saw one of his earlier works on a very big scale. He also drew on a, a very small scale as well in oil. And Willem de Kooning. Again, you see de Kooning's extraordinary draftsmanship here. And Clifford Still. So Clifford Still is the fourth of our four pioneers. We've dedicated the lecture room to him. He is quite a remarkable artist, a very, very difficult personality. Um, and I think for that reason, he has almost been out of the canon for a, lot, a long period of time. During his lifetime, I mentioned earlier, he lived in New York for a little bit. He didn't like it very much, and he decided he hated everything to do with commercialization of art. And he severed all connections with Betty Parsons, who was then representing him, and went back to the West Coast and tried not to sell another work, um, and taught instead. He, um, he only sold 5% of his work during his lifetime. 95% was left in his will to any American city that could set up a museum in his honor that would hold all his work, show his work, not include work by any other artist and never lend. And that city was Denver. They had the foresight and the funding to be able to sit, set up the Clifford Still Museum, which um, opened in 2012, I think. Um, we uh, were lucky enough to have contacts with the um, city, uh, Denver, Clifford Still Denver Museum. David Anfam, my co-curator, actually um, holds a, a, a post there, part-time post there. So working with the um, very enlightened director, the city, the city authorities, and the family, we managed to change the, the regulations relating to the will and the museum to allow nine massive works, his best works, to come to the exhibition in London. So it really is quite a moment to have these remarkable works as part of our exhibition. And we hope we'll, we'll reaffirm his place within the movement. And they are just extraordinary. I think one of the things that David, who knows his work so well, talks about is, you know, you can almost tell that Clifford Still has really removed himself from all other influences in New York. These works are just so individual. Um, there is elements of the sublime in them. His, the coloration, his ability to color in a, use color in a way that we saw in his earlier work from 1942 is, um, has been further developed here. But what you get a sense of, which actually is pretty much the same as Pollock, is this idea of the great, the, the vastness of the countryside. You know, Pollock and Still both came from the West, still had this um, life-changing experience when his family moved to Alberta and his, um, his father tried to grapple with nature and set up a farm, an arable farm, at a time of drought and was just, was, was devastated by the force of, of nature that he couldn't fight against. And here you see Clifford still in painting trying to do the same thing. But they're very jagged, um, just sort of energetic, amazing works. But something like this, you know, this is one that we've used in so many um, of our advertising material, and it really does show his, his draftsmanship as well. You know, that earlier um, line, um, his lifeline, you can see it here. And David pointed out recently, you know, these elements here are blank canvas, so he had this extraordinary ability to kind of draw around the blank canvas. 
The difficulty with abstract expressionism is not just know what, to know where to begin, but where to end. You know, abstract expressionism went on into several generations. It wasn't just um, it wasn't just the first generation, which we've um, which we've illustrated here. It goes on to second and third generation. But we decided to end at the end of the 1970s, just following those first generation artists that were still working. So it's actually a very uplifting end. One of the most uplifting pieces is by Joan Mitchell called Salut Tom, which is her say it is a tribute to um, Thomas Hess, who was one of the, um, who's a, a, a critic and uh, one of the great supporters of abstract expressionism um, after he died. And um, by this stage, she was living in France. She was very influenced by Monet. She spent a long time in Giovanni. And this is very, um, you know, in a, a very abstract expressionist way. It's very reminiscent of, of, um, of Monet's Nymphaeas. And it's an enormous work, eight meters long in total. The final work in the exhibition is by Philip Guston, Low Tide. And Philip Guston in the 1960s, we chart, we chart in the exhibition actually his first work, which was figurative. Then he moves through um, abstraction. And you can see his trajectory through abstraction. 1960s, he's returned to figuration. And this is uh, these hobnailed heels, which are um, kind of lined up like monuments against the sea. Um, it felt like a very... A fitting end to the exhibition. He was um, he was ridiculed when he showed his figurative works in 1970 at the Marlborough Gallery in New York, and he retreated from the art world. world but, but at that point, but continued to paint. And it is a very remarkable and powerful work. And it almost, when you think of the works in the first gallery, so many of them still dealing with figuration, it almost comes full circle. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.